Welcome to This Academic Life, episode 15. This podcast is brought to you by local sponsors and listeners like yourself. If you're interested in sponsorship, then please contact us at sponsor at thisacademiclife.org. Hi, I'm Pania Newell, an assistant professor in mechanical engineering. Hi, I'm Lucy Zhang. I'm a professor in mechanical engineering. Hi, my name is Kim Michelle Lewis. I'm a professor of physics and associate dean of research. Today's discussion is about quantum education. According to quantum.gov website, the National Quantum Initiative Act was signed into law on December 21, 2018. The purpose of this act is to ensure the continued leadership of the United States in quantum information science and its technology applications. This is a coordinated effort by federal programs to accelerate quantum research and the development for the economic and national security of the United States. Within this initiative, there is federal funding that supports quantum education. Today, our guest is Dr. Tina Louise Brower Thomas, who is at the forefront of quantum education. Dr. Brower received a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry from Howard University, a Master of Science in Chemistry, and a PhD in Materials Chemistry from New York University. Currently, Dr. Brower is a research professor in the Graduate School at Howard University. Her research focus includes molecular self-assembly, surface functionalization, and chemical vapor deposition of 2D materials. In addition to being a research faculty in the Graduate School at Howard University, she holds a visiting faculty appointment at Harvard University. Dr. Brower has served as co-PI for the NSF-funded Center of Integrated Quantum Materials, known as CEQUM. She is CEQUM's Executive Director at Howard, Education Director, and Investigator in the area of 2D heterostructure research. In 2020, Dr. Brower took on the role of diversity and inclusion as co-director for the newly NSF-funded Engineering Research Center the Center for Quantum Networks. Dr. Brower, welcome to today's show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be in such great company. <laughs> <laughs> so first I wanted you to tell us what attracted you to chemistry and what motivated you to obtain a PhD in chemistry. So for example, did this start from very young? How was it like? as a child being in love with chemistry? Thank you so much for asking. So it did start very young. I was a curious person. I didn't really like playing with quote unquote girl toys. I was always in my brother's things, my older brother, and I liked taking things apart and putting them back together. I was fascinated with household cleaning supplies for some reason. So I did strange things with household cleaning supplies, uh, including making things shiny in the kitchen, which caused my mom to almost slip on the kitchen floor. And I did other things like my favorite coat, I'd gotten some stains on it. So I grabbed some cleaning supplies and made it my own concoction to clean the coat. And when my mother later went to put the coat on, she noticed a whole bunch of holes in the coat. And she was like, what is this? 
And so, and I also loved to be in the kitchen. I loved cooking with my mom. I think the first real experiment I ever did was from a cookbook, just learning how to measure things and learning proportions. And I was always fascinated about how you can put some things together that tasted completely different, but once you combine them, they came out to something wonderful. And so I think my mom was the first person to really invest in my interest, partially because I was, like I said, ruining the kitchen floor and counters and clothes and other things. So I got a chemistry set fairly young. I would say I was pretty precocious. So that kept me busy. And then growing up, my mom worked at Howard University in the College of Pharmacy. So in the summers, I did Howard's Children's Theater during the day. And in the late afternoon through the evening, I end up at the College of Pharmacy in the labs of some great synthetic pharmacists. Thank you. So tell us about your current position as the executive director of the Howard University Center for Integrated Quantum Materials, also known as CEQUM, and as the education director. Yes. So I actually was working with Professor Gary Harris. He was a longtime electrical engineering professor at Howard University. Unfortunately, we lost him last year. Um, But he was very influential in my career when I returned to my alma mater. I had done a postdoc as my bio, as you read my bio, I'd done a postdoc. I'd worked in consulting for DARPA and DHS. And then I wanted to return to academia. And so I ended up working with Dr. Harris because he was part of what was then called the NSF funded NNIN, National Nanotechnology Infrastructure Network. Howard was part of that and it had great facilities and research. And I saw his lab, I said, oh, I could pick up my research here very easily. It had all the SEMs and atomic force microscopes and other surface characterization tools that I had been used to using. So I started working with him and taking on undergraduate researchers as a mentor and taking more and more responsibility with some of the programs that he had. And he invited me to be a part of the Center for Integrated Quantum Materials as the education director And I said, sure, as long as I could have a research allocation as well. And so that's how I got involved. I started off as the co-director and eventually became the director and then the executive director and also the principal investigator at Howard. I'm still the executive director at Howard. And what the education director means is simply providing programs for our undergraduate students to introduce them to the field of quantum materials or quantum information science or STEM in general, but particularly quantum. And we want to expose them and encourage them to pursue careers in the field, graduate education in the field of quantum. But with that, I also work with graduate students and postdocs to create a community of learners and science communicators. One of our partners, the Mizima Science Boston, the leadership there is really head of the field in terms of science communication. So science communication, education, and outreach became a big part of what the center does. So we're in our eighth year now, and we've had a lot of success of our students continuing on from undergrads, going into graduate programs, and our postdocs always get great jobs in industry, and our graduate students tend to stay in academia. Dr. Brower, tell us what is quantum education? And why do you think this initiative is so important? I think the initiative is important. Part of what you laid out earlier when you talked about what the quantum initiative is, it's to ensure that United States continues to be a leader in science. 
and particularly quantum information science. And to do that, we have to prepare a workforce. So there are a lot of resources that are, as you mentioned, been allocated for quantum research and also quantum education. But of course, if you don't have an educated workforce, you can't be competitive. So quantum education is basically investing time and energy into K through 12 to be prepared for an undergraduate education and preparing an undergraduate student for industry job or to continue in academia as a master's or a PhD. So as one of the first quantum education programs in the country, I believe it is one of the first ones, right? Yes. Um, can you tell us a little bit on some of the initiative activities within the program? Yeah, so thank you for asking. I don't think we had in mind when we were funded that we would be the first quantum center to develop quantum education. We really wanted to just provide research experiences for undergraduates. We wanted to give our graduate students and postdocs an opportunity to mentor for their own professional development. And we wanted to give the faculty an opportunity to interact with a broad audience. We focus on women and underrepresented minorities and also the deaf of hard of hearing and veterans. And I should tell you the Center for Integrated Quantum Materials is a center between Harvard University, Howard University, MIT and the Museum of Science Boston. And so, our activities really are designed to build community between those institutions. So we started off with a typical research experience for undergraduates, which is typically a 10 week summer experience where the students receive a stipend. We started off with the first year just with a 10 week program. We had some other things throughout the academic years, such as seminars, that were available to the entire center. We wanted to make sure that everyone within the center, every institution felt a part of the research and the education experience. So we had open seminars and center retreats and large group meetings between all the institutions. And the purpose was, like I said, to really build community and to have a sense of openness and to have a sense of these leaders in the field of quantum, I mean, these are scientists that are world renowned, that every person in the center had access to them. So that was kind of our premise. And then from there, we started to figure out how can we use the connection between the institutions to encourage collaborative research projects. So we started to really emphasize collaboration between the institutions through the students' participation. And also we started to have a graduate students that worked in between Harvard, MIT, and Howard. So slowly but surely the community grew as a true community where we're all working together. So beyond that, I would say another component is our science communication, which I talked about. The Museum of Science Boston offers a lot of workshopping on how to communicate science. As you have heard me struggle, it's not easy to describe what quantum is. A lot of people call it spooky science, which I you know, don't like to use those terms because my goal is to make it accessible, the ideas of quantum accessible to everyone. And so the Museum of Science Boston under the leadership of Carolyn Alpert really 
help forge our sense of community through science communication. So a lot of our faculty would give lectures at the Museum of Science and out in the public. We have competitions, science communication competitions, where our students are compelled to come up with exciting ways to explain what quantum is to a broad audience. And we also participate in activities such as Nano Days, which is a time during the semester where museums of science have open houses and brings the community in to understand about the different kind of research related to quantum. And we also have the Nano Express, which was started at Howard University by Gary Harris, where we, which we started calling the Nano Quantum Express. And we would participate in the USA Science and Engineering Festival. And that became something we did as a community. Wow, this is really a collective community effort. I can <laughs> see from all these uh, different uh, <laughs> players that come into play, including uh, students and at different levels, and all the faculty from different institutions, a local community, museums, and such. They are all involved in this. Yeah. Now, what about other funding agencies? Are they interested in, in perhaps putting some of their effort into this initiative? Yeah, absolutely. I should say, first of all, we didn't say that the Center for Integrated Quantum Materials is funded by the National Science Foundation. And part of the quantum initiative was to give a great deal of money. And the money went to national labs, such as Department of Energy, and it went to the National Science Foundation, for example. And so, yes, the Department of Energy, for example, has several national research centers. And I would like to point out something that should be emphasized about the quantum initiative is that it really is encouraging collaboration between academia, industry, and national labs. So I'm also part of the co-design center for quantum advantage, which is a DOE funded center that is part came out from the national quantum initiative and their industry partner is IBM. So not only do we have funding agencies that I mentioned, but we also have industry partners in these centers, which include the big ones, Amazon, Google, Intel, and IBM. So, yeah. Wow, this is really a national effort. This it is, is. Uh, quite, mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, very nice. So my last question related to this, earlier you mentioned that we have undergraduate, graduate, and even postdocs getting involved in these activities. So what ways, how do these students get recruited in the first place or students or staff members, how do they get recruited in the first place? For example, if I have students here, say at RPI, who's interested, they want to get involved, do some summer research, for example, is there any way for them to get in as well? How global is this in terms of recruitment? For the Center of Quantum Materials, Specifically, initially, it started off not really being global, per se. So we're challenged with our mission. We're being responsive to the idea that we don't want to leave anyone behind in quantum. So in the United States, you know, without getting too political, it's a challenge because resources for education and opportunities are not universally available. So we did target, as I said earlier, women underrepresented in STEM, the deaf of hard of hearing, first-generation college students, for example, and veterans. And so when the center was founded, we were very strategic about who our partners are. And so what we initially did 
is we said we will recruit from within these schools only. Other REUs recruit broadly, but we really wanted to make sort of a crystallized community. And so once we really achieved that, I would say probably by year six or seven, we started to think about how to broaden that. And so we started a like sort of a partnership with other institutions where we decided we would take certain students through, especially through collaborators. So if we had faculty that collaborated with, say, UC Berkeley, and they had some students that they wanted to sort of work with us. But generally speaking, our model has been to recruit from within. We use the faculty at the different college networks. They're a big part of the community. We have a recruitment process where I go to the different college networks and talk to them about our faculty. I ask faculty to submit research projects. Some of those are based upon collaborations that they have, and some are based upon new ideas that they want to explore. So basically, I go to the college network schools. I give a presentation. I talk to them about the center. I introduce them to a work that previous interns have done, and then they apply. And then once I see the application, I look at the research proposals or summer proposals that the faculty submit, and I start matching them and trying to figure out, okay, this person really wants someone that's interesting in growing materials. This faculty is really interested in someone who can write a program to help understand some aspect of what they have discovered, for example. So you kind of just sort of match them together. And then the faculty ultimately say, yeah, you know, I like this student and we'll make it work. So as an African-American scientist working on NSF-funded center, I'm sure you are aware of various NSF reports highlighting the numbers and statistics on STEM programs. For instance, the latest one that I found was in 2016 that they reported the bachelor's degrees earned by Blacks and African-American was 8.68% in computer science and 3. 86% in engineering. So what advice would you give to parents whose children are interested in science and STEM programs? And how would you advise them to keep them interested in STEM programs? That's a very good question. I think young people, we're made to be curious, right? The average brain has basically the same capacity to learn and to process and to understand things. I think the most important thing a parent can do is support their child's curiosity. My mom, for example, she was more like a business person. She didn't know about chemistry. She did study economics and she struggled through economics in undergrad. And I used to see all these books about linear algebra, her old textbooks. I remember talking to her about percentages and fractions. Like I said, she did teach me about ratios and measuring cups and all that kind of thing. But she was not really comfortable with higher level concepts in math, for example, even though she was an educated person. However, her son has a degree in math from Carnegie Mellon University, and her daughter has a PhD in materials chemistry from NYU. So I definitely think it benefits if someone in your immediate family or friend is into STEM and they can expose you. Absolutely. But don't rule it out. Just supporting the curiosity of your children can go a long, long way. 
that's very true yeah thank you so much for sharing your thoughts so going back to quantum field what do you think that the job market is gonna look like in the future wow i wish i could tell you honestly most people in quantum information science or quantum education or quantum workforce that's what we are talking about what is it going to look like we honestly don't know we know the promise of quantum for quantum sensing for artificial intelligence but we're still so early in trying to understand like what problems is quantum information science going to be able to solve there's a concept of quantum advantage or quantum supremacy quantum supremacy is the idea that whenever a quantum based computer can solve a problem that a classical computer cannot solve in a reasonable amount of time. We're striving towards quantum supremacy. There are different platforms for qubits, for example. People are working on quantum networks for quantum communication so that we can have a quantum network that is, or just a network that's not hackable, right? But we don't know exactly what platform may get us there. There are a lot of nuances about what that platform would be. We know it's going to be rooted in material science. And we know that the quantum network is going to need people to code. It's going to need new algorithms. It's going to need optics to read in and read out. And the answer is probably in the people that we're educating now because they're going to develop what will be the future of a quantum workforce. I hope that answered the question. It's kind of, you know, you did. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. So, and what we are doing, I guess we are educating them. So hopefully we will touch the future and impact the future. Dr. Brower, thank you so much for sharing your insights into the national quantum initiative. And we support your quantum education initiatives as well. I really appreciate you being committed to this effort and serving as a role model to Black females aspiring to become scientists. Thank you so much. It was truly a pleasure. It's always nice to be invited by your colleagues and as a fellow African-American woman and a fellow woman with Lucy and Panya, it's really special to be asked to participate. And I really appreciate what you guys are doing, representing strong women in science. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. Find us at thisacademiclife.org or follow us on Facebook. You can listen to our latest episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or Google Podcasts. Please rate us. We welcome any feedback or suggestions for future episodes. Join us next time for the good, the bad, and the ugly of this academic life.